0: Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of React Native Radio. This week we're talking to Narendra Shetty. Do you want to say hello and introduce yourself real quick and then we'll uh, introduce our our hosts?
1: Uh, Absolutely. Hi, uh, I'm Narendra. I work with Twilio at the moment uh, from the London office. I work as a senior software engineer uh, working with the product of Twilio Flex, uh, which is a programmable communication platform.
0: Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype. And I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language it's built on the Erlang virtual machine and it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you wanna learn that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix and you can find that at elixirmix.com. And I usually introduce our panel first, but I was afraid I'd forget how to say your name. So <laughs> put that out okay. there. Um, on our panel today, we have Josh Justice. Hey,
2: everyone. And Chuck, I'm not offended. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, yeah, anyway, so uh, do you want to just uh, give us a brief outline of what we're talking about today and then we'll get rolling? Uh, is yeah. Josh hashed that out beforehand,
2: right? Yeah, Narendra, you can jump in with that.
1: Yes. Uh, to, for, to start off, uh, this mean, I think we're talking about uh, push notifications with React Native. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the whole idea has been about, um, it's a very simple topic, right? And every app you build needs to have something which you notify your customer of some product update or some new uh, offers you have, you got to update. And this is one of the main features uh, in a mobile app, not just in mobile app, even in the web these days. Um, so when I when I actually was constructing this talk, I, I found very lack, very very less information uh, on the web about this, and it's this a very simple topic. So the whole idea about this talk, which I gave, and uh, throughout this throughout this next half an hour or forty five minutes, we'll be talking about that is uh, how easy it is and how we can achieve that. And I wanted to put that content out there so that people who would stumble upon and trying to build push notifications with React. Uh, would understand the concept of how important that is and how you could do that.
2: Yeah, yeah, the importance of push notifications definitely makes sense. And I think the complexity too, for the little I've looked into it, just because you've got your React Native piece, you've got some native code that maybe, I think maybe differs uh, between the two platforms, of course. You got things happening on the server side, talking to different services that forward the push notifications along. Um, so is that right? Like you kind of need to know about all of those pieces to make it happen?
1: Uh, absolutely. So. The, the the couple of pieces which you need to um, get together. Like for example, anytime you want to register a user uh, based on the device or on the user account, uh, you you got to ask the permission to the user. So that's the first step. That do you allow me to send a notification? And to ask that, it's very important to know when to ask. So like, for example, if you install an app and they're asking you for a push notification permission, 90% of the times you'll say no because you still don't know whether uh, you trust enough to send this, uh, uh, allow this app to send you notification. Instead, if you ask them right at the point when they're making some actions, let's say they purchase something and then you would ask, okay, when if your order is on the way or something, we would like to notify you. Would you like to give me the permission to allow and that is the uh, majority of the chances that a user would allow so that's like the first uh, it's it's not technical but it's product decision. so that's very important to know and even on the technical side if you are building an app for ios and android the two different aspects uh you've got to register differently uh so so again, you, uh, so that information, do you keep that in the server? Then um, make a very simple API for the client to register and everything you've got to handle in the server. And then again, uh, you've got to be aware of users' uh, time, like in which time zone are they? And is it worth sending a 2 a.m. notification? Uh, so so you've got to know the context. So I, I, think, I think push notification is more complex from the product side uh, than from the technical side you could you could you could implement it very quickly going through multiple tutorials and you could probably scale it well, but I think the bigger benefit you would get if you understand your customer better and on what kind of notifications would they respond better so yeah those those are the main things which I talk about uh, in my talk as well
0: yeah, it's funny because uh, i'm I'm the React Native noob here, right um, I've done plenty of JavaScript, um, I've played with React. Played a little bit with React Native, but this is something I actually know about because I got uh, about what five years ago, I did a project where I actually had to build build uh, push notifications into an application I was building on the back end, and uh, yeah, the way that it worked at least on iOS was that uh, it would just you just hit a REST API and it just pushed it up. Uh, yeah. I mean, you had to do some registering right and prove that you had uh, you know access to push notification stuff to the the app, but yeah, it was it was interesting, and and I wonder a little bit if this isn't well understood because at least part of it does have to happen on the back end, like Josh pointed out. So so is this maybe le- less well understood um, in the React Native space because it's at least somewhat driven by the back end?
1: Uh, less understood from the, I mean, the push notification is less understood.
0: Yeah, in the React Native community, because I mean, people in the React Native community, I find really understand JavaScript. They really understand. Um, you know, what goes into the client, but because it's driven by outside forces, it's kind of outside the wheelhouse a little bit.
1: Absolutely. I think it's very interesting you ask that because, so, so yeah, uh, with React Native, the two kinds of audience, one is coming from the JavaScript world, which is the web world, and one is coming from the native world, right? And from the coming from the native world, you understand how push notification works in generally and what you need to do in the backend side as well. In the web website, from the JavaScript side, on the server, I feel it's a very less effort, especially when you're using Expo uh, with React Native. I, I'm sorry, I, I think I'm not answering it right.
2: No, that's okay. I can dig into I have some kind of follow-up questions that I think get into it. I'm sorry, um, Charles.
1: No,
0: it's
2: all good. Yeah, so I'm actually looking at potentially adding some push notifications in a hackathon project we're going to be doing in a couple weeks. So I was doing some initial research. So thinking about like the architecture of how all the pieces t- are, go together, like you have your app running on user devices, you've got your backend, um, but they don't, You know, correct me if I'm wrong, like your backend doesn't g- directly push to individual you know, devices, you go to an Apple or a Google service. Now is it, so I think APNS, Apple Push Notification Service might be the name of the Apple one. And I think I heard in the last few years that Android has changed. So do all Android push notifications go through Firebase or are there options? Like how does that, what services go on the back end that you're talking to?
1: Yes, so you you pointed out really well. So Apple goes on the APNS, which you mentioned, uh, and uh, the Google one goes on the GCM, I guess, Google Cloud uh, Messaging, something like that. So the main thing is you got to know which device you're sending and you got to send it to the right server. So when you're actually asking for um, the permission, the Apple iOS app would give you a unique identification which is coming from the APNS, and same thing which Google does. And for when it comes to your server, you only all, all you need to know is who to send it to. You just need to send it to I need to send it to this token, which is APNS token, and you send this notification, and it's left for the, that server to send the notification to the right device. Um, Now, the same question could actually be asked differently where some countries, like let's say China, which has certain proxy around banning, it has banned certain uh, messaging services. Then you got to really know where your customer is and which service to send it from. And in different countries, probably they would have banned uh, some services. Then you got to send it to different services for that country so that your notification is delivered. So that part is from your backend services where backend you need to handle uh, well on, manage your token well and send your uh, notification to the right server.
2: You mentioned Expo a moment ago. Um, were, were you, when you were building this and in this talk were, you talk, were you emphasizing like the Expo notifications API or like React Native apps outside of Expo?
1: Uh, both actually. Uh, so my talk. So when I was structuring the talk, first thing I wanted to, I wanted to uh, emphasize on how important push notification is if you're building an app. So what are the things you need to do? And the second I get into the part where how push notification in general works, nothing to do with React Native, but how just the while I spoke about, uh, with Apple, what you need to do with Google, what you need to do. And if you don't have any of those, what you need to do. do it. And then I get into the implementation part. And that's where I speak about where I say it's an easy way and the hard way. When the easy way you need to have the Expo SDK and you don't have to worry about whether it's my Google uh, thing or an uh, Apple services, everything has the same API, same way to ask for the uh, permission, same way to uh, receive a notification, same way to respond and everything. So I speak about uh, the Expo's notification API and then I also get into the part of the hard way, which is how do you need to do on the native side of iOS and what you need to do the native side of Android. And then how do you bridge yeah, the, the native part uh, to the JavaScript and how do you access the same API? So I, I speak on both. And uh, basically when, if you're starting off fresh, then it would be nice to use the SDK. And if you already have it, then it's pretty cool. Uh, but otherwise, if you have a brownfield app in that case, then then you could directly, Get into the part of uh, implementing in the uh, native side and then exposing that through the bridge and accessing through the JavaScript. I know Expo
2: has been moving towards, I think universal modules is the right term, like the idea of having bits of their API that are available for vanilla React Native apps. I took a look at the page just now and it's not clear. I know they said that not everything is a universal module yet. I'm not sure if, uh, if push notifications are universal, but that would certainly be very nice. For all of us to be able to benefit from that And they're really emphasizing that interoperability which is just going to be a
1: great support for the react native community absolutely because um the main purpose i think if you want to use just the push notification then you can't you just have to bring everything with that and then use it but you're right if you could use just that part then it's very much helpful then you don't have to worry a lot of scaffolding which which would be just done under the hood
2: I have a general question about push notifications, uh, maybe to get y'all's thoughts on. Um, I've seen amongst coworkers and on Twitter, the idea is still like there's push notifications on the web now. Your web browser will prompt you and any random website you go to once will prompt you about push notifications. Um, And so I've had some, you know, an extreme response that we see from folks on the web is why would I ever want a website to notify me? Like I would never want a website to push notify me. So it's this idea that, you know, mobile apps and websites, like the needs are very different there. I know my CI service is the one that i found where it's like, yeah, I would like a push notification from the CI service. But so I'm wondering if y'all feel the same way. It's like, yeah, I would never want push notifications from the web or do you feel that it is more nuanced than that?
0: I shouldn't Um, say anything, but I'm going to. (laughs) We just barely added push notifications to devchat.tv, the website, (laughs) right? And I'd love to get uh, a a mobile app on the phone so that we could do push notifications on the phone because I think people are more open to that and yeah generally I think um I allowed push notifications from like Google Calendar and uh like maybe one other website in the past and uh, I was I, I was in the same boat right I was like why would you ever but if if it's can't miss stuff then then yeah you know whatever you know from the web browser from the um mobile app you know I'm fine with it and and to be honest it has to be something at least for me that I don't mind being interrupted buy on my computer, right? Cuz if it's a push notification on my phone, then I can just pick up my phone, look through my notifications and see that I missed it. The flip side is is that if it's in my pocket for too long, I'm not going to scroll back through on my notifications, so I might miss it, right? And so if I'm on my computer all day, which I am, um then I'm more likely to see it. And so I don't know, um it, the 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 other end of that though is that um we enabled push notifications on devchat.tv and we had 100 people within like a week say yes. So I, I'm also willing to accept that I may not be the normal use case for a lot of this stuff mm. and uh, that a lot of people really do want, um, you know, they, they want that kind of uh, interaction from the website. Now, they're not going to do it on all of them either, but if they're worried about missing something from a particular person or group, then they might.
1: It's, it's interesting because we are actually talking from two perspectives. One, as a developer who's implementing the push notification and one as a consumer. What you actually answered me was from the consumer's point of view, where you enable notification on the Google calendar and stuff like that, which is important for you. As a developer, I think uh, anyone who's listening, as a developer, you need to understand who your customers are and you need to know uh, at what point is the notification needed. There's some website which I would visit for the first time and I see pop-ups around and the notifications asking me for the permission and I'll probably never say yes to that Uh, but if I have signed in I put some effort I've uh, spent so much energy so much time on so much time on that website then I've already invested so much probably there's some benefit in me allowing um, uh, notification uh, thing the question here is how many out of 100 people who have accepted at the website which is a cell uh, what are the what are the how many times was it popped in uh, popped out i mean how many times was the notification uh, permission shown and out of which how many times did they reject and how many times did they close these data are very important because that actually you can predict when did they say yes uh, and then you can actually optimize your notification asking at the right time so that you uh, increase the chances of uh, customer saying yes and also you would understand who your customers are and What is their usual life cycle around around, uh, your website?
0: About 10 months before we started Ruby Rogues, which is the oldest podcast on devchat.tv, I went freelance. And one of the things that I figured out pretty fast is that I had no idea what I was doing. And I made a bunch of mistakes. But I also made a bunch of friends who were doing freelance. And we got together and we started a podcast called The Freelancer Show. And The Freelancer Show has been running about as long as JavaScript Jabber. But we talk every week about all of the things that we were learning and doing in freelancing and giving people advice on how to get their business started, so that they could go out and be independent if that's what they wanted. Nowadays, I'm not on the show anymore. But we have terrific people like Ruben Lerner and Eric Dietrich, that come on every week and talk to you about how they run their businesses and give other perspectives on things that you can do. So whether it's how to find clients, or whether it's how to step in and start doing training, or other programs or how to run a business, they have a ton of experience. And they talk about all kinds of things that are going to help you pull things together and be successful as a freelancer. So whether you're thinking about moonlighting and trying it out, or whether you're going whole hog and putting your job, you should definitely check out The Freelancer Show. And you can find that at freelancershow.com.
2: From your point earlier, it's I think it's clear that it's possible to do notification requests wrong on mobile and on web. So like, that's the thing. I, want, I think the difference might be just that the inherent extra threshold there is to get a mobile app. Like you have to go to the app store and choose to download it. And so there's pros and cons there on both sides, why it's good for businesses to have a web app and a mobile app as well. But I think the fact that the threshold to go to a website is so much lower, I think means that when developers are doing it poorly and not thinking about the user's needs, you're just gonna run into a bunch more of those prompts on the web that you don't want. Um, So, uh, you know, maybe we could find some way to educate all developers to do it right. That would be nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Also, also, I think uh, one example I like to give is Slack, uh, which if you are on the desktop, it doesn't give you a notification on your phone, and if you're using your, if you're not using your desktop, if you're on the phone, it gives you a notification on the phone. So it's smart enough to know uh, when, uh, smart enough to know which device you are using, and to send you notification only once. And if you're offline at both the point and you're not installed or anything, it sends you an email. So I think notification, the you should not overdo it. It's very important that. Uh, there, so these days, people have would, people would install your app or your website or use your website on multiple devices, and sometimes it's it's irritating if you get you send the same notification to all your devices. So handling that, and that again comes from the uh, that again is done on the server side to know which was the last used devices and and to have a system around it to send uh, to send notification to the right device, and that's very important because. The moment the customer is irritated, they can go and they can switch off the notification and that's it. You can never ask for notification. You can never send a notification again. So you've got to be very careful when you're sending a notification so that we don't irritate our customer and to send the right notification and the right device.
2: So you work at Twilio, which I, in my head I associate with SMS messages, but I know for years and years Twilio has done much more than that. So what in all does Twilio do and can they help out
1: well with this notification
2: services and needs or is there overlap there?
1: Um, you're right Twilio is into SMS anything with anything related to communication right Uh, it's SMS it's telephone it's uh, you can buy a number you can program around it and all of that as far as I know Twilio does not have anything around notifications um, because we provide an API and any customer any company who uses Twilio as an API can build their own system around it Uh, we have certain level of notification like uh, if you have if you have a certain error coming on a certain mobile number, then we provide a notification and on a threshold level. Let's say you have 10 errors today, then we send one email saying that you have 10 errors. Then the next email would probably come at 100 errors. So we're not send email on every error. So that's a, one kind of notification, which is email notification. Yeah, you know, mentioned a-
0: with Dominic from Twilio. And I think he works out of Berlin somewhere. In uh, yes, he,
1: he, he moved recently to San Francisco. Right. So it works from the San Francisco office,
0: yes. Yeah, but but yeah, he said the same thing. that The primary focus is around the SMS APIs. Um, you know, there are a handful of other things. I think Authy is part of Twilio. Yes. Uh, yes. They just bought SendGrid. So a lot of the communications focus that Twilio is there. But yeah, um, when you think of Twilio, the product, yeah, it's mostly focused around the SMS messages or, you know, fancy stuff that people do with phones. Like the, the other example he gave was um, if you're using Uber or... Lyft instead of giving out the driver's phone number to you and giving your phone number to the driver, um, it actually creates a bridge. And so the number that they call to call you isn't your number. It just gets bridged through to your number and vice versa. And that way you can maintain the privacy of the drivers and the riders. So it's, it's that kind of stuff on the phone system.
1: Yes. Yes. And it's interesting because then the customers, whoever like Uber or Lyft you mentioned, uh, They don't have to have so many numbers. They can program one number between multiple drivers and multiple customers that if this customer calls this number, it goes to the right driver and so on. so. So it's just a proxy which could be reused multiple times. And that's Twilio number.
2: Cool. I think we've done a good job kind of talking through push notifications. So, Narendra, you've done some other uh, talks recently. Um, I'm especially interested in this one about A-B testing because it's a concept I've known about for years and years and years. I've done little of it, and I haven't heard about it on React Native. So, tell us what you've kind of thought about and worked on in terms of A-B testing on React Native.
1: Um, Yeah, so the thought about A-B testing for me, uh, I've learned majorly from my previous company I worked with is Booking.com. Um, so the idea of A-B testing uh, is anything you push to the customer, anything you need push to the customer, it needs to be tested. And the w- best way to test is is show both the version to the customer and they will pick which one they like. Uh, the very important part about A-B testing is not just dividing the customer 50%, it's to divide your control group as equal as the base group, which is they should be equal English-speaking users, they should be equal People from the mobile, they should be people equal from US who's speaking Spanish, the, all of the criteria your customers are, the, the group should be equal. They could not be that, oh, it's 50% divided, but Europe are majorly on base and the Americans are majorly on variant. Then, then it's not equal. Then the buying things, the whole mentality changes. So th- that's very important in A-B testing. And that's the most difficult part about A-B testing. Uh, so to speak about React Native or mobile, web is very different because in web, you have an idea in the morning. By the end of the day, you probably released your website, you launched a new version, and you already have users in your uh, test. Uh, on mobile, is very different because there is a release cycle. You've got to uh, submit it to your app store or your play store, and then there's a review process. And then the, once the app has been approved, then you wait for a few days so that it's all stable. The new version does not break. And then you start the experiment on an average, this can take from one week to three weeks. And by then the whole idea of why you started the experiment would change because then you're like, okay, I think this could be done differently. And the worst case, what if there is a bug in your experiment, then you've got to start the whole process all over again. So I was talking about how it is done, uh, how it is different from web and, uh, Mobile And then in React Native, uh, there's so many APIs, so many third-party companies you can use, like Optimizely provides an SDK to uh, to JavaScript SDK to use in your mobile apps. Um, So the idea is that, again, do you want to split your customers on the client level or on the server level? So if you're doing it on the client level, then then you got to make a decision on how many are already on the base, how many are already on the variant, where this user would be going and all of that. But if it's on the server level, before even the user gets the request, the server decides which experiment the user goes to and everything. And then then the decision happens on the server and then the client just responds to it. Yeah, because if it's on the server, the main focus is if it's on the server, then you can uh, categorize, then you can actually consider a lot of things like... Um, where is the user from, which group, and then you can decide on which group to push it. Like I mentioned, English speaking, non-English speaking, everything has to be equal. Um, Then again, if the uh, user is visiting again, then you already know in the server level which uh, bracket the user were already in and that they have to be served the same one again. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, the idea of like, um, over the air updates and kind of a quicker turnaround time for React Native is appealing to me in general. But the idea of applying that to AB testing is like a really specific way where you can benefit a lot. Like I could see like, you know, you can, like you said, you on for just regular native mobile apps, like you could still AB test, but it's over a longer time period, which a makes it slower, but it'd be a, because of the risk of a bug, I could see it discouraging you for even trying it at all. And so just, the, the availability of these quicker feedback loops uh, on React Native, it seems like there could be so many different benefits and ways you could benefit from getting kind of real data.
1: Yes, yes. And with all their updates, like you mentioned, you can pretty much get it in a day. You can release your uh, experiment from morning, you have an idea, and by evening, you can probably have some users already using your uh, experiment.
2: Now I've run across A/B testing mostly at larger companies. I mean, they have the infrastructure for this. Is that where you've mostly seen A/B testing, or have you seen it like maybe startups that are really trying to iterate quickly, um, or is is the overhead of thinking about A/B testing just something that smaller companies
1: don't tend to take on? So with bigger companies, the whole idea is that you have so if for A/B testing, you need uh, you need bigger audience, you need large audience, so that you neutralize all the all the small issues which may not be caused by your experiment so with larger companies it's pretty easier because you have so many users it's it's uh, it's much easier to nullify them but with smaller companies you can still do ab testing but you got to do larger experiments so so if you have more users you can do experiment let's say i'm changing the text here and you can you can see the data there but on the on the smaller companies if you have less audience you will not be able to change a text and see an impact Even though you can see it, but you'll take a lot of time to do that. Optimizely uh, has something called a power calculator, which actually tells you that uh, how many days do you have to run this experiment to see a uh, statistically significant result. By statistically significant, what I mean is, um, okay, variant is better than base on a consistent level. So variant is 1% more improved performance, but not just for today, but on a consistent level. So that is statistically significant. And so Optimizely Power Calculator will tell you that if you have this much audience, then you got to run this for these many days to really see a statistically significant uh, data. So smaller companies definitely can try it, but they got to try a bigger experiment, but they probably have to run for longer duration.
2: What are some examples of the kinds of things that you've seen A/B tested? Um, and is there, was there any like really surprising ones that made a difference that you wouldn't have expected? There's so many
1: of them. I don't know if I can talk about all of them. Uh, there's one thing which uh, which most people do is uh, change their entire landing page. Um, you might have seen suddenly the entire landing page has changed, uh, and probably they can say that oh this has improved twenty percent or ten percent of my sign up, but the problem there is you don't know what has improved the customer experience. Uh, so the secondary metric is very important to really compare with your base and variant. Is because okay, probably your sign up button is much bigger now, so there's more sign up. It may not be related to all the other changes you have done, and that because of that, that will not lead to your next experiment lines. So any experiment you do, it's very important to know what's your future experiment lines. So. One of the very famous one is the hamburger icon. Uh, So for people who don't know hamburger icon, that's the three horizontal bars on your mobile apps, which you usually see. Um, So I think a couple of years ago, there was a lot of discussion about in the design community that users don't really care about hamburger icon. And if you put anything there, they would click it. Um, So at Booking, they did that experiment. There's a blog on that as well, uh, where it didn't really matter. So at booking people, uh, there's a design which was one, in the base, it was hamburger icon, And in the variant, it was something which was menu. It was a button with the menu written on it. Uh, same number of people clicked, the same number of conversion happened, nothing really impacted. Uh, but there's another blog. I'll ping I'll that. I'll, I'll mention that later. <laughs> there's another blog which I can't remember. That had a huge impact. Uh, so with A-B testing, it's also important to know that what something worked for others may not work for you. Uh, because the audience are different and it's very important to know that your audience would have a different mindset uh, so that's that's another learning which I had where even even on the same website on the landing page they would uh, behave differently and on the book page they would the same customer would behave differently and the same experiment may not work. Years ago, I
2: saw some kind of website that would show examples of two different, you know, the A and the B and ask you, it was like a quiz, like you had to guess which one was more effective and then they'd show you the results. I'm not, I just Googled for it and I found one called guessthetest.com. So we'll put it in the show notes. I'm not sure if that's the one I saw before, but it's interesting to think about even to like what kind of things would people experiment on. So uh, maybe check that website out if listeners are interested to get ideas and inspiration.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen people do experiments all the way down to, we changed the color of this button and more people tapped it, clicked it, whatever.
1: (laughs) It's interesting, right? Like small, small details can really affect customer in a large way. Narendra, Do you have any
2: recommendations for ways people could get into the AB testing mindset and learn some of that strategy that you were describing just now?
1: Yeah. The main reason why AB testing really helps is that, um, so in booking days to call them as hippos, highest paid highest paid person's opinion which is that you don't have to uh, listen to your manager or your ceo always you you will have to learn you learn to question data so anything any changes come you'll ask why and what are we trying to improve and how are we going to track that so i think i think knowing that will really stru- uh, help you structure it so with ab testing one main thing is that before you start the experiment it's important to have a hypothesis like I'm changing this button to blue and I'm doing this for uh, more signups. Now, what am I going to track? I'm going to track how many people clicked on it, how many people visited this and so and so. And what's my primary metrics? And primary metrics is very important because at the end of an A-B testing, you will have a page full of data and some are doing better and some are doing worse and you don't know whether you have to still go for it or not. And with primary metrics with e-commerce website, it's pretty straightforward where it is um, bookings has to increase and the cancellation has to reduce. That's it. And if you see an impact on that, you will probably go ahead with it. And no matter what. So, so any A-B testing you're doing, very important to have a hypothesis. And for hypothesis, have a very clear primary metrics and also track a lot of secondary metrics, which helps you understand if something goes wrong. So And any new changes come in, question about why you're doing it, how are you going to track it, and when will you uh, give it to all the users and uh, what what is the impact you're
0: seeing? I love that. And it's funny too, because it's not just in companies that we do this. Um, I see so many people that take their cues on like social issues or political issues off of celebrities. And I'm just going, yeah, but that person's expertise is singing good in a microphone. I mean, why do we care about their opinion? Right. And and it's it's interesting. You know, we we have that same thing, you know except worse in companies because that's my boss and he can fire me or determine what I get paid or whatever. Right. And so, yeah, I love the idea of having data to back it. And it's like, okay, what do we actually know and how do we know it? And then we can make a decision based on that because it's really interesting. It's really, well, it's interesting too, but it's really easy to get tied up in I'm invested in this person or invested in this thing. And so I'm going to, I'm not even going to examine my bias as to whether or not I'm even paying attention to what makes sense.
1: Yeah. And and if you have a good tool to um, start your experiment and to track, you don't have to really wait or probably if it's a small change, you don't have to tell your manager or your product manager. You can start that experiment straight away and then you have a data to back up. After two weeks, you can really yeah. uh, check what it is. So it's a very easy process. But again, there are a lot of complications even there. So yeah. Yeah.
2: Chuck, I don't know if you were referencing this a moment ago. There's a software development talk that I heard called uh, "What We Actually Know About Software Development and Why We Believe It's True." Um, I'll put that link in the show notes as well. I can't remember whether the talk actually confirmed my biases or opposed them. Um, so, but it's you know probably good to know regardless. Um, but it was really interesting taking this evidentiary perspective towards like software development practices as well. So I would encourage folks to watch it and then let me know if all of my emphasis on testing and dynamic types are rejected by the talk. I can't remember.
0: Yeah, we, we did an interview with the two guys that gave that talk on Ruby Rogues a number of years ago. It's Andrea Steffick and now I feel bad because I've talked to this other guy a number of times. Greg Wilson is the name on the Greg link. That I share. Yeah, Greg Wilson is the other one. And uh, yeah, um, just the way that they approach this, you know, from kind of a scientific standpoint, and the things that they've figured out, it, it was it was really fascinating just to go. Oh, there can be some scientific rigor applied to, you know, something as touchy feely as how I write my software.
2: Yeah, I um, I skipped economics classes. I, I chose other things in college uh, rather than those uh, economics and statistics. And uh, both of those I regret. So, if anyone who's in college in university, I recommend taking economics and statistics. Both of them are extremely practical. Um, I did take philosophy, which is helpful, because I feel like logic, you know, logical thinking is the other thing. I mentioned before on the show that we're not just rational, logical creatures. There's the interpersonal and emotional side as well. But when it comes to arguments for things like, you know, political things or, you know, how we should approach things in software development, I think the logical side as well, like what conclusions are we drawing? And uh, are those valid conclusions from the, the uh, you know, is a valid reasoning? So yeah, I think the statistical side and the logical side are both, both important. My wife has a research uh, grad school background and she will come in and uh, look at news articles and say, yeah, they can't draw that conclusion from that data they have there. That's, that's not valid. That's not statistically significant, as you said, Narendra.
0: Yeah. When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent you need to accomplish your goals. Go to devchat.tv g2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. In my experience, G2i is linked up with experienced developers that can fit my budget and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works and can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack. Go to devchat.tv g2i to learn more about G2i. Yeah, or or you look at the data and you realize that it may be statistically significant, but they're they're leaving off the other implications because they're inconvenient.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and I'm very terrible at data in the sense I don't understand like like you mentioned, I don't understand the statistically to really get the raw data and make sense out of it. But luckily I was surrounded by the by good data scientists who really helped me understand. How do you uh, make sense of what you have in front of you? And it's really important, I think, uh, to have someone uh, around you or I think articles or like you mentioned, there could be talks to understand and to learn that because that could be applied in any any product you would be working. Yeah. It kind of
2: draws my attention just to the whole idea of focusing on the product. Um, some other developers, the podcast that I listen to, have been focusing a lot in that in the last year, and just the idea that it's about more than just writing code. Like, if you want your product to succeed, like there's the the marketing aspect, there's the product. Like what is the product? There's the focusing on the customer aspect, as you said, um, and I think. I don't know, those folks would say that every developer needs to think about product. Uh, I, I have a bit of a pushback on that right now. It's like, oh, I really love the code. Like, I just love that. Uh, but also, I don't want to build things that are useless or like put effort into something that doesn't make a difference. So whether we are as developers are in charge of that, or whether we're just like supplemental folks who are maybe asking questions about requests that come into us. And asking if they are really focused on the customer. I think either way, uh, you know, we may all have different passions in that regard, but it's good for all of us to know about that kind of thinking regardless. Yeah. yeah. I think this is
1: this is one of the controversial statements, right, If I'll be making right now, is uh tech is just a means to solve a problem. I think all the problems which the tech solves, it's just a medium to solve a problem. The real problem, if the developers don't understand what the real problems the software has been built for it's very difficult to build uh, build for the customer right so for, i always believe in customer research and understanding the customer first and you may not have to make your website really fast because your website is always loaded on a the 4g then you never have to do uh, then you never have to make it fast you can always uh, skip that part so if as a software developer i really enjoying working on the performance i would still do it but your customer never care about it so it's very important to understand who you're serving, and what is the product really
2: solving? You're really connected with this audience, who is me, because I uh, over-optimizing for performance is something that I get passionate about not doing. Um, and so you've connected <laughs> that I care about that. Yeah, if, like focus on a customer is one way to avoid some of that premature optimization, some of that over-engineering.
0: You're the only one, Josh. Nobody else over-optimizes their code at all. <laughs> and if you didn't hear the sarcasm in my voice. Um, anyway. um, Yeah, I completely agree. It's, it's so easy because it's, it's a prod, it's a, it's a process with a clear outcome. And uh, that instead of, boy, does this solve these people's problems? Or is there a better way to solve these people's problems? That's a whole different ball game. And it's, it's a lot harder to measure. I mean, you can measure, oh, do you know, do they, do they go and, you know, click through to the next thing more quickly? Does that indicate that they're just, lost or does that indicate that they're you know that it's intuitive or you know that there's not really a good metric for gee this is better other than just watching people use it but uh, unfortunately we don't spend enough time doing that kind of thing and really understanding what we're doing and what the impact is on the people we're trying to help.
2: You know, and if you find that you're a developer that really cares about that, like really cares about optimizing for performance or some other kind of, you know, like minimizing bundle sizes or figuring out like new things in, you know, front end or in mobile engineering that haven't been done before, then that's great. Like you have a passion for that, like find a company, you know, to the degree that you have opportunity and privilege to do so, like find a company where that is their need. And hopefully they're asking for that. Um, uh, my predilections tend towards the middle of the adoption curve, just kind of building out features, you know? And so for me, like it, it's better to find customers where like the performance needs are not quite that demanding. And if I find myself at a company where it's like, hey, we really need that, you know, every last drop of the engineering uh, of you know, to get that performance, then, you know, maybe that's not the company for me as well. So, you know, I don't want to discourage anybody who has different passions in development than I am, but I think thinking about your, you know, your client, if you're a freelancer, or, you know, the company you're working for, if you're at a product shop and what their needs are. And you may just find as you grow in your career, as you find what really gets you excited, that you may be a bit misaligned and just maybe somewhere where your passions are going to line up with what that customer needs.
0: Yeah, and I love that too because it really gives us space for people to be different and to have different propensities toward different areas or, you know, enjoy different parts of the process. You know, me writing software and you writing software are going to pay off for us differently, and that's good because then you can do the stuff that you really enjoy and I can do the stuff that I really enjoy, and then we can go find somebody else to do the stuff that neither of us really enjoy um or you know or maybe there's some degree of us both sucking it up and doing the parts we don't enjoy but at the end of the day you know the the project gets done and you may wind up doing a whole lot of things that i'm just not comfortable with or not good at and vice versa and 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 that's the great thing you know i i hear people talk about diversity a, a lot in this industry and you know from from a fairness standpoint it's really hard for me to gauge you know how fair things are cuz I just don't know if there's a good measure for how everybody experiences the industry but as far as the rest of it goes man if you have people in there that enjoy different parts and you know have different backgrounds that inform the way that they write software differently and they're finding better solutions that that helps everybody and so to to that degree you know I I'm all for it now yeah you know there are some other costs that sometimes come with that because you don't see the world the same way in other ways but you know often the team benefits and people benefit from you know getting used to understanding people who have a different background or point of view
1: i'm really glad we're talking about this because these days it's very easy for anybody like on twitter we see a lot of people and we fantasize being somebody who we are not and uh, they enjoyed something else and we enjoy something else and because of that we tend to learn things which we don't like and Like you clearly mentioned what I like or what I, the way I write the software is very different than what you like and you write the software. And it's very important to understand what really uh, motivates you and what really uh, makes you wake up in the morning and really go for your work. uh, And then probably probably pursue because everyone's motivation factor, everyone's interest, everyone's expertise is very different from each other. And it's really important to know that and then uh,
0: pursue that. Yeah, I also like the point that Josh made that, you know, it it might take you a few jobs or career moves to figure out, you know what, I really don't like this part of it. I really enjoyed this other part of it. And so, you know, it's okay to make a mistake too and be there for a year or so and then go, all right, well, I have learned what I'm going to learn here. I'm not really liking this. So I'm going to move on to something else and see if I can, you know, make an incremental step forward. And that one might be a mistake too, right? You still might not be perfectly happy there, but over time you're going to get better and you're going to figure out, okay, you know, I like smaller companies. I like companies with this kind of culture. I like companies that provide these kinds of benefits. Uh, these are the things that really matter to me. And yeah. yeah, it's, it's an iterative process to get there. I can give you
1: my example. I started off uh, with, with 3d modeling. I stood, I used to build car, model cars, face, and a lot of other things, I did 3D Max, Maya, and all of that. I should always joke around saying that my PC was not fast enough, (laughs) and the only tool which worked was Notepad. Uh, But in reality, that is true, because um, after that, I tried my hands on 2D animations, doing some work on Flash and writing action scripts, AC2, AC3, back in those days. Um, And then I remember, then I got into Photoshop. I did a bit of graphic designing, even then, I, I was not I was not interested in it. I, I enjoyed it, but I didn't feel uh, fulfilled. Then I got into Python. That was my first, PHP, Python. Uh, did a bit of backend. And I remember the first time I got into JavaScript and did the front end, the designing of website and everything, I really enjoyed. Because I enjoy the part where I match design to code and build the exact same thing. And then speaking to the customers, understanding what they liked. And so that's how I found my passion of JavaScript or the front-end technologies. And I, since then, I've been just doing front-end and doing JavaScript. And I never went back to doing Python or PHP. So I tried all of that. And then now I've stopped <laughs> at JavaScript.
2: I think another advantage of some of those jobs that aren't where you ultimately end up is you learn about different aspects of the software development process. And so, even if you find that your passion is front end development and mobile development, if you've worked some on the back end, as you have, you know, you know a bit more about what's involved. It can help you ask better questions of the back end developers you're working with, um, make ideas, suggestions for things, as long as you're not stepping on toes. Um, and just have a little empathy, too. Um, I remember on a project I was on, we, uh big enterprise client, we asked the back-end developers, like, hey, like, why? why this seems kind of inconsistent. Like, why is it set up this way? It would be nice if it was set up different. And they responded with, yeah, we wish so too. But the back-end that our back-end is getting the data from is set up that way. I'm like, there's backends all the way down. Like, they, they have the same experience as me. Um, so, yeah, just that cross-learning, that kind of versatility, no matter how focused you are in your work, uh, I think, knowing the breadth of the way different yeah. things work. Um, an example would be just knowing about A-B testing. Like even if you're not wired the way to think about that, you can notice suggest it to your team. Like, hey, like it seems like A-B testing would really help us out here. Are any of y'all into it? Like maybe we could find someone who could help us out with that. Absolutely,
0: yeah. Yeah, well, the other thing too, and then I'm going to push us to picks because I have a hard stop in about 10 minutes, um, is that you may be way into JavaScript right now. You may really love doing React or React Native or both, And then after a while, you're going to run across blockchain or AI or something else. And you're going to realize, you know what? I don't necessarily love um, React Native any less, but this is really pushing my buttons right now. And I'm really enjoying it. And so you may move on and there's nothing wrong with that either. And so it it really is, I I guess, just a, a tree of decisions. And none of them are necessarily the wrong ones unless you're making the decisions for the wrong reasons and not growing and learning the way that you really ought to. So, yeah. Anyway, let's go ahead and do some picks because yeah, I've got a hard stop in eight minutes. So, uh, Josh, do you want to start us off with some picks?
2: Sure. Um, my first pick is, uh, speaking of backend, is a book called Functional Design Patterns for Express JS. Uh, it's by a friend of mine, Jonathan Martin, who I used to work with. Um, and he, we have a fun relationship where I was like super anti-JavaScript when I started where I worked because of the history of JavaScript in the past. And uh, he was the one that started to uh, fix my uh and give me openness to JavaScript. Uh, so he got me excited about modern JavaScript, about React. And now with this book, um, he's got me into Express.js. Um, this is kind of the first guide that gave me a holistic picture that helped me to see how to put it together, especially because you know Express has a lot of flexibility for how you set things up. And so he does, guides you through design, some design patterns incrementally so you can see the benefits of kind of putting some structure around your Express application. Um, so I'll share the link to that uh, book. It's available as an ebook and uh, it's really great if you haven't uh, tried Express before, especially, you know, front-end JavaScript developer, want to learn a little bit about JavaScript on the back end. My second pick is uh, a search engine service called Algolia. A number of folks may have used that in the past, but this is my first time reaching for it. Um, I tended to hand roll searches in my back-end applications a lot um, because I was just like, oh, I don't know. I want to learn a big service. Maybe it'll be hard to use. At Algolia was extremely easy to integrate. We were using Rails, so they have a, a Ruby gem that's really easy to use, um, but they have backend integrations for every platform imaginable. And I imagine the others are really easy as well. So if you have anything more ex- complex for searching than just kind of searching on one or two fields, you should really check out Algolia. Just you know, give it an afternoon to try it out, uh, see if it gives you kind of better, nicer search results. And we found that just the intelligence that it gave us um, was giving us really great results. So those are my picks for today.
0: I'm gonna pile on that one, um, so I've been playing with Algolia for the last few weeks, actually, it's kind of a little serendipitous actually that you mentioned it um, but uh, yeah devchat.tv, TV um, you know I wanted to add a search function to it. I was using uh, WordPress before, and WordPress kind of has some crappy search options that you can use. none of them I really loved, but they they kind of work, and so um, I decided to. Pulled together a, uh, you know, a search function for devchat.tv and I went and checked out Algolia. Now, one issue that I, I ran into was that the indexing, uh, you kind of have to build your own index—is generally how I figured out that it worked, but I didn't want to do that. I mean, we have, uh, what, a couple thousand uh, podcast episodes on devchat.tv, And, you know, I I could have built, you know, a JSON file into the build process for the website because it's a statically generated website. But uh, I didn't really want to write all that code. And they have an open source um, tool called DocSearch. And DocSearch is free if you have an open source project and you want to use the DocSearch option on the documentation. You can run it for free. And then you can have an Algolia search on your documentation for free. Um, But they've open sourced DocSearch. And so if you want DocSearch to, go through your site and generate all the indexes for your site, you can do that. And so uh, I spun it up. I just, you know, it it runs in a Docker container. So you just run it and it spins up the Docker container, runs the doc search, connects to your Algolia web or Algolia account, pushes all the indices in, and then you're good to go. And voila, we have search on devchat.tv. So uh, I really like them. It, It turned out to be a little bit more, pricey than I expected it to but yeah we'll see how it goes and it's mainly just because it generated a lot of indices so I'm kind of playing with that to see how I can make that better I still might wind up hand rolling well uh, code rolling an index but we'll just see where we end up with all that but in the meantime yeah I'm really liking it it's super responsive you just drop the JavaScript snippet into your website and it does the search stuff for you so yeah really digging that so yeah, I'll just I'll just uh, pile on Josh's search there, um, and then I'm also reading a book called Maxed Out hashtag Maxed Out. There's a hash in front of it. Um, it's by Ed Milet. and uh, I've been listening to his podcast. And you know, uh, I'm actually part of a you know a group that gets training calls from him and Andy Frizella. They talk about business and life and stuff. And anyway, really digging that. The book is really great. It's really short, so go check that out as well. It's Maxed Out by uh, Ed Milet. Narendra, do you have some picks for us?
1: Um, yes, I do have one pick. Uh, so my pick is a blog. It's a blog by Dirk Silvers. Uh, it's a very old blog. It's a blog from 2010. The URL is s- silvers.org slash obvious. I'm going to post this link on the chat. So this blog is about obvious to you, amazing to others. Uh, it's a, it's very interesting. It's a very small blog, which actually tells you that, uh, most of the times you see someone else's work. And you always think, wow, it's so amazing, so nice. Why did I not think about that? And you think about yourself and say, why do I always work on the boring stuff and things like that, right? So it's it's a very nice uh, blog where it puts things in perspective about uh, what the things you work on is always interesting for someone else. And what someone else is doing is interesting for you. And actually, this blog made me write a blog myself, uh, sharing my knowledge and also start giving talks. And today I'm giving this podcast. So I think this has led me to where I am today. Um, and I like to share it to, with everybody so that hopefully it motivates others. Because uh, often happens that I look at what I do and I think, wow, this is something so obvious and everyone should already know about this. And uh, there's at least one person chance that someone might benefit from your knowledge. So share what you have. Uh, and I was motivated by this blog.
0: Awesome. And then Narendra, if people want to find you online, where do they go?
1: Uh, my Twitter, my Twitter handle is Narendra underscore Shetty. Uh, someone took Narendra Shetty. So I had to go with the underscore. And my GitHub, my GitHub is Narendra Shetty. Uh, I used to write blogs. It's been a while I'd wrote it. Uh, so that's on Medium at Narendra Shetty. So yeah, these are the places.
0: Nice. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, we will go ahead and uh, wrap this one up and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot to learn more.